Thanks for joining us for this archive of Teaching American History's last Saturday webinar for the 2019-2020 school year. This was also the last in our American Minds series of programs and focused on author Ralph Ellison. Thanks again for joining us and look forward to an email from us this summer announcing our next Saturday webinar series for the 2020-2021 school year. We all ready, Kathleen? I'm ready. Excellent. Welcome everybody to our final teachingamericanhistory.org Saturday webinar of this academic year. These Saturday webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science here at Ashland University. I'm also co uh, sorry, director of the Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduate teachers. The theme of our webinar series this year has been American Minds. If you happen to be joining us for our very last webinar in that series, the point is to pull together some thoughtful scholars and have a conversation, in this case, about 10 important persons in UN, U.S. history who have somehow influenced or re, somehow reflect uh, what Thomas Jefferson called the American mind. We encourage all of you joining us today to participate in our conversation by submitting questions in the chat box. And as always, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. I ask that if you submit a question, please be sure to submit it to all participants and not just to me privately. So in case our, our scholars joining us today can, can see a question, if they see a question, they can just jump on it if they so choose without waiting for me to, to raise it. In the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation, as well as a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. Uh, today, we're talking about Ralph Ellison, uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, writers of all time, and I'm happy to be joined today by Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University and Kathleen Pfeiffer of Oakland University. Thanks to both of you for, uh, for joining us this morning to talk about uh, Ralph Ellison. Glad to be here. So I, uh, Lucas has done a number of these with me. You know, you know my, my standard disclaimer is I, I tend to start with a very broad question. And you, both of you are of course perfectly free to uh, run with it or ignore it entirely and talk about what you find interesting <laughs> about Ellison. So I'm gonna start with a broad question. I, I have, um, Ellison has been described as a great writer, a great American author, and, and a great black author. Uh, do you agree with all three of those descriptions? And in what sense, if you do, is he a great author, a great American author, and a great black author? Kathy and I are both smiling because of, <laughs> <laughs> that is a question that could carry the whole uh, hour yeah. and 15 minutes. It, it, Kathy, do you have something that just immediately leaps to your mind while I try to figure out which of those I want to address? Yes, no, what immediately leaps to my mind is that Ellison himself would, I think, have appreciated the hierarchy of that question, which is to say, I think that he identified primarily as a writer um, before he thought about himself as an American writer, certainly before he thought of himself as a Black writer. And in fact, I think a lot of, um, of the few interviews he gave in his life that last category is the one that I think he really resisted the most, um, being compartmentalized in 
terms of his racial identity was exactly what all of his writing sought to resist. That's my initial impression. What do you think, Lucas? Yeah, I think that's fantastic and uh, could not have said that better. That is a good way of describing um, his self-understanding of what he was trying to do as an artist. Uh, There is that hierarchy. Um, uh, One of the influences, I wouldn't say the biggest influence, one of the influences was his best friend, Richard Wright. He was the best man at Wright's wedding. And as he put it, read uh, Native Son as it came off the typewriter. He said Richard Wright, what he learned, one of the things he learned from Wright was that Wright was not trying to compete with other Black authors. He was trying to compete with world authors. He was taking on uh, the greatest of the greats. That's how he understood the task of any writer, uh, which is to tell the truth about the world as they saw it from their experience, and in particular, what they didn't see anybody else seeing or saying Mm -hmm. about what they saw. And so from that, he was never going to think of himself simply as a Black author or as an American author only. And yet, in his art, uh, he thought he would be telling the truth uh, about what it meant to be American. Uh, Take a a greater, uh, shall we say, more capacious or comprehensive uh, look at the landscape Uh, One that he thought was done well by a few people before him, for example, Mark Twain uh, and, of course, Faulkner in the 20th century, but uh, men who didn't see certain things that Ellison saw and thought he could bring these things to the table, Uh, which, of course, for him meant something that he could, in a way, if not only see, um, uh, at least had a head start in seeing precisely because he was Black in America. Uh, He said one of the great ironies of living in a country where race played such a pernicious role is that even in the most segregated neighborhoods of America, Blacks were invited by work into the very bedrooms and kitchens of white people, and whites never had that perspective in any Black neighborhood, or very few did. And so he said, wow, this is a gold mine for art, a gold mine for literature. And, and Ellison thought it a privilege of his, as well as a few of his forebears, to tell that story. Well, and as you were talking, Lucas, I was looking at the epigraph to Invisible Man, which begins by citing Melville and citing T.S. Eliot. And so yes. it's clear in his, in his masterwork what kind of tradition he's responding to. Um, And one thing that I was looking at yesterday in preparation for this, maybe some of you are familiar with um, a YouTube video which shows an interview with Ellison from 1966. It's archival footage from the Oklahoma Historical Society, and he's being asked about his work in progress. And one of the points that he makes, I think quite passionately, is that he's aware when he's interviewed that he'll be understood primarily in terms of his racial identity rather than in terms of what he says. And I Mm. certainly think that that perspective is evident in the essay that we chose for today from 1970, which is What Would America Be Without Blacks? And Lucas, I know this is something that you've taught. This is my first time reading it, actually. I know it's something that you've taught much more frequently. Um, And I have to say, one of my strongest initial responses was to see how he not only anticipated but pave the way for Toni Morrison's argument, which I think has gotten a lot more 
publicity and has had a lot more resonance in um, whiteness and the literary imagination, her right. work about race as a metaphor for American identity. And I'm really struck that this is an argument that Ellison was making so much earlier. Yeah, I'll, I'll reply to that briefly and then uh, let Chris get us back onto the queue for other questions he has uh, teed up for us. But uh, uh, there are so many things in Ellison, especially his novel Invisible Man, where he is just way ahead. I mean, he, without, I mean, well, Ellison, shall we say, has been the meal ticket for many a dissertation, many a scholar now. I mean, the understanding of, of privilege, the understanding of inclusivity, uh, there, there is so much that Ellison put on the table, uh, even Rainbow Coalition, we have a, 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 an allusion to that or reference to that in the novel. Uh, so many of the things that Ellison had pointed out, others have based their careers on. Um, so yeah, uh, but you know, a, a number of these as well, Ellison didn't create out of nothing. He learned and uh, adapted and modified things. He, he read in Du Bois someone he disagreed with in some very categorical ways and yet learned things from. Uh, so yeah, the fact that Toni Morrison uh, became, uh, or, or at least made it more popular than Ellison ever did, uh, as one of my mentors said, you can get a lot done in this world if you don't worry about who gets the credit. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great statement. Um, so this has been a great introduction uh, from both of you into the readings and uh, and now I'm torn because we've touched on themes and ideas that I think are reflected in all three of the readings. So I'm torn about which of the one which of the readings we should turn to first. Um, so Kathleen, you said that this was the first time you had read um, Ellison's essay on uh, on blacks in America. Um, let me pull that up very quickly. Um, let me pull my website up here. Uh, Sorry, not cooperating. Uh, what would America be like without blacks? Um, what is his argument here? Danita submitted a question. Uh, is he is Ellison suggesting something like uh, that without his blackness, there would not be other great authors of, of color in American culture? So what is what is it about uh, blacks that that according to Ellison uh, make America America? I guess that's my question. Mm -hmm. in this essay. And by, um, before I forget, as you're thinking about this, before I forget, I also want to throw out there, I would love to at some point come back to a discussion of his friendship with Richard Wright. Sure. Especially the, the difference in their styles of writing. Mm -hmm. So maybe at some future point we can circle back to that. That's something I personally am fascinated with. But, but what is what is Ellison's argument in this essay? Well, um... Uh, I'd like to point out one thing about this essay when Time Magazine, and by the way, um, the magazine uh, was entirely devoted to uh, what we would call black or African-American issues. The The cover is this uh, very striking um, uh, artistic rendering of Jesse Jackson by the noted uh, black painter Jacob Lawrence. So if you don't know this, um, go to eBay or just Google <laughs> and type in Jacob Lawrence, Jesse Jackson and Time Magazine and you'll see the image. I, if I was prepared, I should have, I could have shared that on my screen with y'all. But at any rate, it was an, an entire magazine uh, devoted to um, Black issues and uh, Ellison had one of the, the key essays in it. 
Uh, the article uh, begins with the sentence, the fantasy of an America free of blacks. And then in the next paragraph, there's this line, the fantasy of a blackless America. That was the original title of the essay. And Time Magazine changed it to what America would be like without blacks. So they made it uh, less uh, uh, provocative, shall we say. Uh, but, but Ellison used the word fantasy. In other words, it's fantastic, not like awesome, but fantastic, like, are you kidding? How could you possibly understand or know this country's politics, its literature, its language, its culture, but for the presence of Black people? And in, uh, this is essentially the story he is trying to tell in Invisible Man, and then it's continued in his posthumously published novel, Juneteenth. In Juneteenth, there's an early episode or scene where one of the characters says, he's got them caught between what they profess to believe and what they feel they cannot do without. And that's the tension that Ellison is trying to get us to be honest about and what he explored in um, both his fiction and his prose, uh, this idea of the things that we say we believe in, like equality, like individual rights, like government by consent of the governed. But on the other hand, we try to deprive people of what we just claimed they all possess. And so this essay is his way to be very specific and concrete in terms of these various categories where he thought, but for the presence of Black people, um, our way of life, our politics, our history, our highs and our lows would not have happened. 27 things you said that I want to respond to, but I'm just going to begin with an early point that you made about fantasy as in fantastic. And what resonated about that with me is how it evokes Ellison's identity as a modernist. Now, in terms of his literary ancestry, he was very specifically and deliberately modeling himself on the work of previous American authors like Hemingway and Faulkner. But Ellison also came of age as a writer during a time of literary modernism where there was a lot of cross-pollinization and fertilization between the um, aesthetic disciplines. He was influenced by music, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot more. Um, but before Ellison settled into a career as a writer, he worked as a photographer, he trained as a sculptor, his early training was as a musician. And the mention of the fantasy or the fantastic um, makes me think of how his political vision was informed by a multifaceted aesthetic vision. And there is aesthetic resonance in his political message, by which I mean, um, there is throughout Invisible Man a kind of surreal quality in his writing, which mm -hmm. is the result of craft, but it's also a way of evoking something fundamental about his experience as an African-American. I think about the opening scene where the Invisible Man is literally underground, and in Ellison, the literal and the metaphorical are often combined. So this idea of the fantasy or the fantastic I think it's really important that we don't go too quickly over how revolutionary that concept was. Um, for all of the criticism 
that Ellison received, I'm thinking of Irving Howe, the accusations that he wasn't sufficiently political, I think yeah. it's worth noting that, in fact, he was pretty radical and revolutionary, but not in traditional or expected ways. Um, I think that the experimental nature of a lot of his writing uh, reflected an attempt to create a space in American literature that accurately represented all of the fullness of dimensions of identity that he wanted to articulate. Can we just jump in? That's so many great points there, Kathleen. And I, uh, when you mentioned he was criticized by some by for not being so political, that whole scene, a whole sequence of events to me, an invisible man when he's working for the, uh, is it the Liberty Paint Company? Yes. I, that's, a, I mean, uh, again, on a metaphorical level, that's extraordinarily political, right? When you think of all the imagery <laughs> that's incorporated into that, that's a, a representation of American politics you know, almost on the cosmic level, so to speak, right? Uh, at least that's the way I took it, so. Yeah, the, their, their most popular paint is the optic white Op paint, white. and it's, it's, uh, it goes on American monuments. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, uh, and, uh, but, but what it is that makes it pure white are those drops of black dope. Yes. Right? Yeah. The idea that it's precisely the inclusion of blackness that yes the whiteness so pure, I think is an aesthetic expression of the political viewpoint in this essay. And I'm looking at the paragraph, it's, gosh, I don't know, I printed it out in, um, I'm looking at the paragraph towards the end where he says, absent too would be the need for that tragic knowledge which we yes. try ceaselessly to evade um, that the true subject of democracy is not simply material well-being, but the extension of the democratic process in the direction of perfecting itself. It's the next line that I wanted to point out. Mm -hmm. He says, the most obvious test and clue to that perfection is the inclusion, not assimilation. And I think the distinction between inclusion and assimilation that he makes here in nonfiction is then imagined and expressed in that scene of the black drops of paint are right. what make the white pure. And of course, yeah. um, he places great emphasis in that scene. And what happens is that blackness is an essential contribution, but you stir it until it disappears. In other words, here is a way of keeping America white, if you will, but denying the blackness that made it what it is. Yeah. Ten drops, not one. I mean, so 10% of the population, if you will. Yeah, that's great. And I wasn't, I wasn't aware that he was originally trained as a musician either, by the way, which I think Kathleen mentioned. Um, can, and, and music, and, and especially jazz, right, plays a big part in all three of these pieces that you've mentioned. Right. But, but music in general, uh, or all three of the pieces that you've recommended. Um, so um, what about what is it about jazz in particular hmm. that, that Ellison finds useful? He, he brings it into his writings so frequently. Is there something about jazz that he's trying to use to uh, to give us a deeper sense of America in terms of whiteness and blackness? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's, I think Ellison was well aware of the statement made earlier by James Weldon Johnson that jazz is the original, authentic American art form. Um, jazz is the only creative expression that did not 
um, and th that didn't inherit its, uh, its aesthetic from European models. Um, and the notion of the jazz musician as a model for what Ellison was trying to do as a writer is something that he talks about often. It's not only the idea of immersion in the medium leading to a kind of improvisational logic that can access something deeper in the writer or in the musician, but his method of composition relied very heavily on the sound of words. And again, this is something that I think he um, gets from Hemingway and from Faulkner. But one of the interesting scenes in the film that I mentioned earlier, that archival footage, and uh, it shows that Ellison would write first at the typewriter, and then he would read his writing into a tape recorder and play it back. So it was mm -hmm. always not only the look of the words on the page, but also the sound of the words in the ear that he was really attuned to. And I think that was a way of celebrating what was a unique contribution of African-American culture to American culture generally, which is its musicality and mm -hmm. um, its, uh, its evocative resonance in that regard. Yeah, I, I can't improve on that at all. I'll just mention that, um, interestingly enough, it's Ellison claims that it was reading T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, that reminded him of Louis Armstrong. It reminded oh, him right. of huh. jazz and improvisation and experimentalism. I mean, good grief. This is a poem that has footnotes that are in Greek that, well, <laughs> if you don't know Greek, it's all Greek to you. And But Ellison, who did not know Greek, uh, was so blown away by this poem uh, you know, one of the exemplars of the modernism that that Kathy mentioned earlier, that he had to go look this stuff up. He had to get the answers to try to figure out what Eliot was doing. And then lo and behold, one of the epigraphs to Invisible Man is four quotets uh, quotation uh, by Eliot. Uh, by, yeah, by Eliot. Well, and then the way that he plays on that in the intro to Invisible Man, which I have to say, I mean, as an English professor, I just find it so delightful. You know, you think he's got the, um, the Louis Armstrong playing in the background. What did I do to be so black and blue? Yes. And one of the things that Ellison deploys in really tricky and I would say magical ways. Magic is I mean, this is his phrase in the in the essay that we're just discussing. He talks about tricky magic. But the magical way that he plays on Louis Armstrong, Black and Blue, and the lyrics of that song are so on point with the story that Invisible Man is telling, right? The lyrics are, I'm black and because I'm black, I'm blue. But being black and blue is also the condition of receiving physical violence, which is also a truth that's present in that introduction. And so the juxtaposition of black and blue through music with the red and white of the vanilla ice cream with the slow yes. gin that he's eating yes. at the time. I mean, all of these, um, there's so much layering and playfulness in those literary scenes that attempt to translate the idiom of jazz into some kind of narrative form. And I think that's a really interesting point. And one other thing that I'll say about that has to do with how Ellison was influenced by Langston Hughes. Hughes's poetry mm -hmm. also attempted to create a new kind of poetic expression that captured what was unique and paradigmatic about the vernacular of African-American folk um, language. And so I think that there's a lot of influence from Hughes as well. Excellent. Hughes was the one who introduced um, uh, Ellison to Richard Wright when Ellison landed in New York. 
Um, I have to say that the that blue uh, has yeah, definite uh, multiple meanings, layers, as Kathy put it, black and blue. Yes, uh, the, uh, as it were, you know, the result of physical violence. But for him, blue is, a, is the color in this novel uh, because it also represents the blues. Uh, one of the great uh, characters is this guy named Jim Trueblood who mm -hmm. comes to uh, an understanding of his predicament, shall we say. <laughs> I won't get, no spoiler alert there, you gotta read it for yourself. Yeah. Uh, it comes to his awareness of who he is, as Elson might put it, true to his blood, when he starts singing himself some blues. And, but for the blues, if we didn't have blue, there wouldn't be red, white, and blue. There wouldn't be America for Ellison. Uh, it, this is that essential, black contribution. And so I would say, uh, not as a cheat sheet or a formula for reading Ellison, but I would say pay attention anytime the color blue pops up. Uh, there's probably a hint or a suggestion as to something that's distinctively black American about what's going on there. Oh, that's fascinating. Other one other footnote onto the true blood is that in that scene, and Lucas is right, you should definitely read it for yourself because it's fantastic. In that scene, true blood encounters a character who is understood to be a blue blood. Yeah. And so the, the, they're aligned in unexpected ways. And so even when the color blue is not literally visibly present, the concept is there as well. That's a great point. Yeah. I forget the character's name. Throwing a blank, but he's a he's a donor to the college, right? Mr. Norton. Mr. Norton, uh, so Mr. such such Norton. a central character, and uh, it appears at the beginning and the end at the end of the book. Yes, uh, those are great points. Um, so I, I just wanted to circle back for a second. I'm trying to take <laughs> furious notes here <laughs> for my own sake as you're both talking. But um, is there? So we talked about his use of. Um, Armstrong's black and blue. Um, and I've, I've taught this book, this text twice on the undergraduate level and students uh, want to know whether, whether he's using this as a way to just raise some ideas or thoughts in our minds, or is he, is, does he agree with some of the things that Louis Armstrong says in the lyrics or does he disagree? Maybe that's too hard. That's too tough. That's too much of a question. I know. But part of the reason they ask is because there are some, as you know, there are some controversial lines in that, um, that the lyrics of that song. Uh, I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. My case, yeah. Because uh, uh, I can't hide what's in my face, right? Um, so they they often want to know, and again, you've you've already started talking about it in very thoughtful, more eloquent ways. Um, did is Ellison trying to say he's black in in some ways, but but essentially white? Or is by saying I'm white inside, would that mean does he seem to be saying that I'm just a human being? I'm like everybody else inside. Um, yeah, I mean that's uh, a, I'm trying to ask this, or <laughs> I'm not sure there's a question here. I'm trying to I'm trying to. Uh, sort of circle back to, you know, maybe a common theme of all three of these pieces from Ellison. Is he emphasizing the common humanity that he has uh, or that he shares with others uh, and that, that matters of race are? That I, I think he's doing, as usual with Ellison, he's never just doing one thing. Um, there are many layers, uh, many things going on. Um, 
for starters, we got to remind ourselves, Louis Armstrong didn't write those lyrics. They, right. they were uh, so, right. but it was a signature song. He probably played it every time he had a, a, a regular concert performance. He slurred, according to one article I read, he slurred some of the more controversial lines as his way of communicating. He doesn't buy everything that the person is actually saying in the story. In other words, Louis Armstrong is not ashamed of his blackness. And it certainly was the case that Ellison was not ashamed of his blackness. Um, there is this one of my favorite passages in the prologue is when he's in that fever dream nightmare state brought on by the slow gin poured over the vanilla ice cream and probably smoking some substance as well. Uh, it's in this fever dream where he has this sermon that's a, a clear riff on a sermon in Melville's Moby Dick, where the, the black preacher is engaged in this call and response performance of a sermon. And the preacher calls the sermon, the blackness of blackness. Mm -hmm. and what I ask my students when they hear this uh, or read this sermon, um, does the preacher, uh, what does the preacher mean by the blackness of blackness? And it is in the prologue, so we're just beginning the story, of course, that the narrator is going to lay out for us. But what I end up trying to point out to my students is, at least for Ellison, there are some dreary aspects of being black in America because of, right, great, this is a country that enslaved people uh, on the basis of race, segregated, Jim Crow them, et cetera. So there is, a, if you will, the bleakness of blackness. But I think by that point in time, the narrator, and certainly by the time he's done with the novel, which is his memoir, through the prologue, he has shown us uh, not just the bleakness of blackness, but the virtue of being black, what it is. And we see a whole list of very diverse black characters in this story who have come to terms with their place in America. Some things not so cool, other things pretty ingenious. And Ellison is trying to show that through this character that he, for example, he learns some of the virtues uh, of being invisible. The thing he keeps complaining about, nobody sees me. He figures out, wait, I can make this, I can turn this to my advantage. And that's one way of his saying that even though blacks are pretty obvious in the white majority American culture that we are, uh, there have been ways that blacks have been struggling in a, a, a noble way, uh, attempting to thrive and attempting to make their contribution where they could and fighting the good fight, even while whites, some things they notice and some things they don't notice. But but all the while, I guess, to bring this to and in um, the blackness of blackness is a good thing uh, for, for the narrator. It's certainly a good thing for Ellison. Yeah, I want to build on Lucas's wonderful point by um, returning us to a passage in this essay where he talks about um, uh, Huck Finn and um, Jim's condition as American and Huck's commitment to freedom are at the moral center of the novel. Um, but he says here at the top of the next paragraph, uh, had there been no blacks, certain creative tensions arising from the cross purposes of whites and blacks would also not have existed. And I think that's a really important point that he is perhaps unique in making, which is to say that it is precisely the intersection of race and it's precisely the tension that comes from trying to navigate the racial divide that creates imaginative possibilities 
that um, that offers um, cr uh, creative tension that he, I think that creative tension is where Ellison is inviting us to dwell as a space of possibility. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, a, that's great. So <laughs> that's amazing. Um, the, can we talk about then his use of invisibility and what invisibility means in that context? Uh, I know this is a difficult one uh, uh, concept uh, in some ways, but I'm reminded, by the way, uh, before we go down this road, perhaps, that the text begins with the words, I am. Mm -hmm. um, and it strikes me, and it, then it immediately follows, I am an invisible man. So from the very beginning of the text, contrasts an assertion that he is a, a person, he is a being, right? He is himself, and yet he's invisible. Um, and I've, it's a strange opening, in a way. <laughs> but it's the theme of the entire book, I believe. But what is, what is invisibility? What are the, well, I, look, this is a big question, I know, but yeah. you mentioned the virtues of invisibility. What are the virtues of invisibility, um, Lucas? Uh, now I'm going to defer to Kathy. She's the leader of contribution. Well, Please go ahead. Yeah, at the risk of doing too deep a dive into a literary close reading, let me just riff on this idea for a minute and call our attention to how much visibility and invisibility informs the readings that we've done for today. So for example, um, yes, it's true that the opening line of Invisible Man is I am, but also note I and I. Um, in the opening of In a Strange Country, we hear in the pub, his eye had begun to close. Now, and that opening line could have ex been expressed in other ways as well, uh, but the attention to eyes and to vision, I think is one of the things that Ellison is playing with. The rhetorical similarity between the first person and the eye um, and the way that invisibility is created by the blindness of others. So that interaction between the self and the other, between the writer, between the narrator and the audience is something that Ellison is calling our attention to. Um, but the notion of blindness and insight is also connected to light and dark. And there again, he's playing with that in the opening of Invisible Man, where he is hiding in his underground basement, but he is also stealing power. Um, <laughs> another way that Ellison is using electricity and power as both a metaphor and an actual thing. And there are other stories where he uses the idea of power and electricity interchangeably in these really fantastic ways. I'm thinking in particular of a story called A Party Down at the Square. Mm -hmm. um, where there's a power line that's been ruptured, and it's not just um, electrical danger, but it's also power run amok. So huh. the idea of invisibility, I think, um, and the way that he interrogates it is something that he repeats um, and returns to in a number of different places. And I think that it, it, it is a through line in all of these readings. That's wonderful. I love I love those connections. Uh, I, I should hasten to add that Kathy mentions one of his most controversial or at least provocative. I don't know that it's controversial, but it's certainly one of the most provocative and bracing uh, stories. The short story called The Party Down at the Square um, is a story about a lynching told from the perspective of a northern white youth who comes to spend time with relatives and the party, quote unquote, is where the when um, in, 
that's probably Friday night, uh, the, the town gathers uh, to witness the lynching of a black man. Um, and it's it's the most, I think, in terms of style, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to Kathy to, to confirm or deny or reject this, but I think it's the one that's most, um, the one that follows most closely Hemingway's spare style of just reporting things uh, matter-of-factly, as it were, that the narrator doesn't try to issue judgments, but you see the judgments in the actual developments of the plot. But suffice, so I'll leave that there. Um, I am an invisible man. Uh, again, here's a case where one, one thing that got Ellison upset is he was he, he didn't like the fact that the reviewers would talk about his books and none of them would mention how funny it is. He said, didn't you didn't you at all you know, get a laugh out of you know, when I did this and when I did the other thing? And the very first line of the book, it is literally true. We do not see the writer. I am an invisible man. That could be said by anybody who writes a book. You do not see the writer. What is that painting that says this is not a gun and it's actually a painting of a gun, but it isn't literally a gun, right? You couldn't uh, shoot it. Yeah. Ellison's doing that in the very first line of this book by saying, hey, I'm an invisible man. I mean, so like, tell me something we don't already know. And yet there's a lot invested in it as Kathy just pointed out. He does not tell us. He is a black man. That has to be inferred as you make your way along in the prologue, in the story. Somewhere down the road, he describes himself as ginger colored, but at least in the prologue, you, you infer things by his description of other things, by his description of where he lives and uh, what others would think of that. And then you go, oh, it's, this is a black guy that's writing. And Ellison recognizes publishing this novel in 1952, um, he, he wants as wide a readership as possible. And he takes it, Ellison as an author takes advantage of the fact that he's invisible to his reader and mm -hmm. that they are gonna have to take this novel on strictly its own terms. And to, if he can catch them and catch them at the beginning, then, then, then he has done half of his his job, but it, but I think at the heart, it's exactly what what Kathy said. Invisibility has less to do, and this he points out in the first two paragraphs, less to do with what he is physically. He's not like that H.G. Wells story that was already published. Um, it has more to do with what other people see or don't see in him. That is that describes his predicament as an invisible man. Um, this is a novel that begins with I, and the last word is you. Um, mm -hmm. That is not a coincidence. That is deliberate on his part. And the hope is that if he has succeeded, um, he will have taught us it, the ways in which we are all invisible to each other. Race is the major trope in this novel. <laughs> it's hard getting away from that. There's no denying that. Uh, but by the end of the novel, I would think certainly well before the end of the novel, Ellison hopes to convey the idea that that in a way there are uh, a host of different lenses through which we see one another, what we call our identity or identities today. And race is just one of them. There's this song by um, what's the band that Gwen Stefani was a part of? No doubt. Um, yeah. She has a song called I'm Just a Girl. <laughs> and if you read the lyrics of that song, that's, I mean, Ellison would give her a standing ovation. That is a song about invisibility, but it doesn't use race. It uses sex, the difference between males and females. We'll leave it at that. That's so 
Lucas, I want to ask you about something because it's interesting to me that we've been discussing these texts um, anti-chronologically, but in fact, In a Strange Country was written first, and yes. the points that you just made about invisibility, I want to suggest, are first examined in the midnight scene where the protagonist, and let's note that this was not a first person story, this is third person limited, so there's no I here, but the protagonist is invisible in the opening scene. Um, he's not seen by his fellow shipmates because he's black and it's nighttime. Right. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts about how that experiment with invisibility in, in a strange country then morphs into the firsthand account and the self-awareness of invisibility in Invisible Man. It's an, it's an interesting evolution um, precisely because of the notions of national identity and country and community which are explored in a strange country um, take on so much more complexity in Invisible Man. Well, that is a mouthful. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not so much a question. I, it's just an observation that I had. And I didn't know if you if that's something that you had thought about as um, is in some ways, like in a strange country as a kind of origin text um, for the idea of invisibility, where he sort of happens upon it, maybe even accidentally in the scene where, um, you know, they hadn't seen him because there's also the play with light there as well like yes. he gets knocked in the eye with yes. a flashlight and so that again here is lightness and vision that's also associated with violence right because in a strange country he begins with his eye is all black and blue right, right? so that there's that conversation with um with invisible man well I, I think and when i teach uh, in a strange country um i begin my race and equality class always with this story i mean he, this is you know decades ahead of the whole colin kaepernick and and should we pledge allegiance to the flag should we sing mm -hmm. our spangled banner are you allowed to kneel or stay in the locker room whatever um i i think all the elements are here the elements that that as you say are addressed in a more complex way in invisible man uh, which you can do in a novel because uh, this short story as short stories go is pretty short uh, but light sight music um, uh, humanity belonging estrangement integration all of these elements are are at play and according to this it says this was published in 1944 so this is basically around the time when ellison had to leave because he was ill uh the merchant marine the merchant marine uh, had given him uh, experience in Wales, uh, experience abroad serving his country, as he put it, uh, in, in, in a military service that was not Jim Crow. You know, at the time, the military uh, was yet to be desegregated. That happened, I think, in 48 with Truman's uh, executive order. Uh, Ellison wanted to serve his country. He wanted to defend his country, even though he recognized ways in which his country did not um, give him everything it claimed it gave it would give to all citizens. And so he explores uh, um, what we call today inclusivity or inclusion in a story that begins in a public venue, a bar, and then uh, takes us to a private venue, an exclusive, not exclusive, but an excluding, that is to say, a private singing club. Um, uh, and Wales singing is a huge deal. It is a national treasure. I talked to, I have talked the story, 
I don't know, a dozen times before I, it really came to, not came to, I just came across how, how big a deal uh, being Welsh and, and singing is. I mean, they're, they're like this. Uh, and so uh, what I think Ellison is doing in a more explicit way here than he does in Invisible Man is wrestle with the meaning of inclusivity and exclusivity, if you will, citizenship and foreignness or alienness. Here's a, here's a story where you have a, a narrator who is black in Wales, referred to as, uh, by one of the Welshmen as a black yank, and in a complimentary, matter-of-fact way, not a prejudicial way, who is then invited to a private club. And by the end, they want him, if he were to stick around, they would want him to join. They would want him to be a member. All of these ways in which he has been welcomed on foreign soil, but ways that he is clearly excluded in his own country. As Kathy pointed out, he is mugged at the beginning of this story by fellow servicemen who don't notice he's black until they get real close to him. And then they jump him and then he's rescued by of these Welshmen. So one one brief point that I want to make just to add on to that is this past semester I taught in a strange country and I have taught it before, but this past semester in particular, it resonated with the students in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. And that's because a lot of them had been watching The Crown and they had seen the episode of The Crown that focuses on Wales and the coal mining disaster. Yes, that yes. episode communicated very clearly how the Welsh were second-class citizens and they saw all the connections between wow. race and social class and the colonialist impulse that made them second-class citizens. And it was one of the best discussions I had because of that. That's cool. That's really cool. Can I ask then on top of this, uh, on, you know, light of what you're all pointing out here, the title in a strange land, what, what land is it referring to? That's how I begin my class. <laughs> I said, exactly. what is the country that is strange? And of course, there's at least two possible answers, but Kathy, you're chomping at the bit, so go ahead, <laughs> or champing at yeah. the bit. Oh, I was just gonna say, now, which country is strange and what is strange about it? Um, yes. And that's that usually sets it going. Yeah, it's great. So, I mean, they, but yeah, the, the, essentially the, the, a good portion of the class is then devoted to in what way is Wales strange to the narrator, but on a deeper level, of course, how do we discover that America is the strange land given what we see happened to the narrator and what in his uh, abiding introspection is a very introspective uh, narrator uh, even though, it's, as, as Kathy points out, it's third person, we sure are in his head a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and we learn uh, what is strange about America. That For, for me, the, one of the reasons I always teach this novel is because I'm a political scientist. And so it's, there are a lot of political overtones um, and implications uh, about it. Now, uh, there's an Old Testament reference that uh, Ellison is riffing on. How, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land, right? Ah. Yeah, and, and Ellison is, is definitely riffing on uh, that understanding of Blacks being in America, of America for generations, for centuries, and yet still not feeling completely included. Huh, how about those Welsh? And so it, the, the, the Black experience played off against the Welsh experience in, in um, uh, this story is wonderful. I want to let, let me since I brought that up. 
the, the, the short story concludes with a series of songs that are national odes of a sort, except for the Internationale, which is a global one, obviously. Uh, but I love this. The, it, on page 145, uh, Mr. Caddy whispers to Invisible Man, it's our national anthem. Right. Well, they're standing. It's like that scene in Casablanca where she's crying and belting it out with the guitar. And ah! anyway, so they're really into it. Then the next song, the piano struck up God Save the King. It was not nearly so stirring. Now, why? <laughs> okay. Um, what is God Save the King? Perhaps I will hum a few bars. God save the king. If you're American, you're, you're thinking, wait a second. That sounds an awful lot like my country tis of the sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. So why is it not so stirring? Well, the Welsh, of course, after singing their national anthem, aren't probably going to sing God Save the King with as much verve uh, that goes without saying. But to the narrator, because he's the one commenting, it was not nearly so stirring. He probably is, is making an observation, huh, they were into it, but not as into it with their own national anthem, but it was probably also not so stirring because it reminded him of a song he was probably taught to sing as a child in elementary school and having to sing about his country and singing about liberty, but on a daily basis, probably not having that full experience, that might also be a reason why hearing God save the king, but in his head, recognizing the melody, reminding him of a song that might have been a little bit awkward for him as a black youth in the United States. That's, that's fascinating. And so uh, the Welsh, uh, you know, uh, sing their national anthem with gusto and passion, less passionate about the other, you know, God save the king. And then connected to that is, it seems to me that, is it Parker, the character? Is that Mr. Parker, Mr. yes. Mr. Parker, right? Uh, he's really moved by, he's moved by, Pat, you know, by their singing of, of the American national anthem. Maybe in a way he's never been moved before. I get the impression well, that he's... Okay, Kathy, I've been talking on ad nauseum. You go. Well, a couple of points. Let's just pause on the fact that his name is Parker um, and the evocation of Charlie Parker. Uh, yes. But let's also pause on the fact that they call him Mr. Parker. Is there any other place in the world in the 1940s where a black man would be addressed as Mr. So-and-so? And so the repeated insistence on addressing him as Mr. Parker, I think is central to the strangeness of this country. Um, uh, but also towards the end, Lucas, that was such a great reading of um, the unfolding of the music. And thank you for singing too. Um, that was fantastic. So many ways. Uh, but note here at the end, you know, when we got to um, uh, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there, look at the yes. change that comes over him. It was like the voice of another over whom he had no control. His eye throbbed. Again, I'm going to point to the play on words there. It's not just his eye, it's his vision. It's connected to um, invisibility, but it's also connected to personal identity. His eye as in his self, his self yeah. throbbed. 
as well. A wave of guilt shook him, followed by a burst of relief. And this is the key line, I think. For the first time in your whole life, he thought, with a dreamlike wonder, the words <sighs> are not ironic. Wow. And so American identity fulfills its promise only in a strange, and that's also what's strangeness about the right. country, it fulfills its promise only elsewhere where his identity is recognized and celebrated. Um, and then you go to the end here, um, he has this transformation and then the last image. And here I think Ellison packs so many layers of meaning into these images not only within each individual story, but I think we've really started to tease out how there are um, links between and among his various stories. Um, Mr. Parker could not reply. He held Mr. Caddy's flashlight like a club and <laughs> hoped his black eye would hold back the tears. So the flashlight that first clubbed him in the eye um, has now been replaced with a flashlight that's being offered as a gift, as some kind of, um, not even a weapon, but as a way that's going to guide him home in the future. And I just, I think the resonance of how he so very carefully manipulates all of these images. And just one other point that I want to make in this story is how self-conscious and constructively self-conscious it is as a literary text that is participating in a world of literature because Mr. Caddy says, you know, you can return the club, um, so he can, you can return the, um, the lamp to Heath's bookstore. So clearly Mr. Caddy is a reader. Um, and this is just a little farther after Mr. Parker has thought to himself, um, uh, put out that light, Othello. <laughs> so there are all of these ways that he is drawing on numerous literary traditions in constructing um, the world that Mr. Parker has now found as liberating and uh, again, a space of possibility. Yeah, that's marvelous. I this yeah to to your question, Chris. Um, even though it is a very short short story, there is a development that the narrator goes through. He doesn't instantly come to the conclusion he really can be proud of a country that still discriminates against him. Right. Okay? Um, he is serving his country. So notice uh, it isn't that he has completely rejected America. If he, this story couldn't be written if he had completely rejected America. Uh, but he certainly recognizes the ways in which, um, and he's not allowed to forget apparently when he lands in Wales, that um, he is a black man in a white, a majority white America that isn't completely um, uh, aligning its practices with its principles. He is reticent at the beginning, even though these white Welshmen rescue him from white Americans, his uh, comrades probably from a different service. He's there as a merchant marine, he was probably jumped by some Navy men or army men or somebody not used to seeing a black man in uniform. Uh, but even though he's rescued by these Welsh, he's very guarded in that bar. He says no first when he's invited to join them at the, the singing club. And it's over time, it's his interactions with them as he gets to know them, as he responds to their statements towards him, their actions towards him, he warns to them. He, as Ellison puts it in a different essay, he discriminates among the discriminators. In other words, he recognizes, wow, there are white people who, 
see my blackness and in fact said it out loud yeah you're a yank black yanks and white yanks all around here <laughs> he, they see his blackness but they don't hold it against him and in fact they point out the things that they have learned about black people that they value especially the songs they have brought with them to wales and so it's Ooh. over time this interaction with white people that reminds him of those ever so rare moments when he back in new york was as he puts it part of a mixed um uh a mixed jam session right a musical group and he says mixed and that means racial mixed uh, yeah. racially mixed he has had experience on the mainland if you will with whites and blacks doing something that was a harmonious rather than cacophonous or violent thing. Uh, no surprise, it's music that is right. the uniting thing, right? A mixed jam session. Then he gets to this choir where he sees a different sort of diversity. It's a, a socioeconomic one. You've got you know, a mine owner, a union worker, and a miner all singing the same tune. Are you kidding? Marx is turning around in his grave. Ellison <laughs> sees that diversity among mm. this Welsh producing harmony. He's had that experience musically back at home. And it's in this interaction with whites that aren't using his blackness against him that he thinks, huh, maybe, yeah, maybe there is something back at home that I can use as a lever freedom and that's what brings him to the national anthem kathy brought up the lyric you know you're an artist you decide in a short story not just what gets left in all the stuff you leave out you leave out he didn't have to mention any line from the national anthem any american audience knows that first stanza by heart these are the lines ellison includes gave proof through the night that our flag was still there even though uh, it's dark, hmm. the, the irony of bombs trying to destroy America, lighting up the sky so that Sir Francis Carkey can see the, the, the flag that is still there for Ellison through this narrator, I think he's showing, huh, okay, if America, is there enough in America that I can use as a basis for greater freedom for the struggle for the advancement of, of, of liberty. Um, I think that's what that flag represents. And I think it's at that point, given his interaction with white people, they are Welsh, but they are white people. Ellison, excuse me, Mr. Parker has greater hope at the end of the story than at the beginning um, that, uh, that America winning World War II is actually an advance for freedom, not just abroad, but at home. Remember, the NAACP debated whether they should wholeheartedly support the war effort, uh, in part because the army was not uh, integrated yet. And they finally decide to, on, I think that some, uh, a campaign that was uh, initiated by a, one of the, the major black newspapers of the day, the Chicago Defender, I think it was the Defender that came up with the double V campaign victory abroad ah, and victory at home. Blacks will, and you should support World War II. You should support the, uh, the defense of America and, and her allies because it is good for you too. And uh, the black involvement in that, the NAACP's involvement was going to make sure that that victory should produce greater victories for um, equality and rights for blacks in America once mm -hmm. it's over. 
I just want to circle back to some points that you made earlier in that comment, Lucas, which was really super interesting because I never noticed before um, these two particular lines from the national anthem when you're giving us the historical context of that moment, it aligns the um, flag in the night being illuminated as a symbol of possibility with mm -hmm. the two scenes of mugging that begin the story in a um, in a strange country and that also begin Invisible Man. In both of those scenes, the blackness, the literal blackness of the narrator or the protagonist at nighttime is what makes him invisible. Mm -hmm. And so the connection between light and dark, between visible and invisible, between white and black is a through line in all of these. And in highlighting these two lines from the song, he is specifically anchoring them to American identity in a direct way. Um, that's one point that I wanted to make. The other point that I wanted to make is to call our attention to the top of 142. Lucas, you're absolutely correct. The surprise that he experiences in hearing how beautiful their voices are, it says, the well-blended voices caught him unprepared. And again, the <laughs> word choice there, well-blended. Um, he heard the music's warm richness with pleasurable surprise and heard beneath the strange strange, not unfamiliar, strange, between <laughs> the strange Welsh words, echoes of plain song, like that of Russian folk songs sounding. Um, and I thought you were going to, uh, I thought you were going to quote the line, Lucas, because you've always done it before in class so beautifully, which is when we jam, sir, we're Democrats. We're Democrats. Yeah, it's a great line. <laughs> a it's great a great line. line. And I think it captures a lot of, um, well, it's funny also, but I think it, it also <laughs> captures something very sincere about Ellison's creative project, which is uh, gemocracy. Um, yes. The idea that there is something in musical expression and in jazz in particular that has a space of um, possibility for blending and harmony. Yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes. Yeah, so uh, this is a really interesting. Uh, uh, in a Strange Country begins with, uh, with the idea that one's identity, one is identified by race or color and then it, it moves into the realm of identity by country or nation right mm -hmm. but then there's there's the so there seems like there's a trajectory here right and then you raise to the level of the angelic that's represented by by singing by music and as as you pointed out earlier uh, one of you pointed out he's invited to become one with that you know, unite with them in in song right so there seems mm -hmm. like a trajectory here and I couldn't help but think of a comment John Talley, our friend John Talley, hi John, <laughs> posted. Uh, it occurred to me that Ellison is pointing out that he is he is a part of humanity, uh, but placed outside the native world by outside sources uh, in the Welsh pub and in the Invisible Man. So is the trajectory toward the level of, of humanity in all of this? Is that what Ellison is suggesting to us? Or is that too abstract for, for a question? I mean, I mean, it seems like there's an elevation in terms of how one thinks about one's identity, who one is, how how, how people are viewed, if you will, mm -hmm. or seen by others, race, nationality, and then music seems to transcend both of those things. Sure. And sure. The idea of Remember, these, right? the, these Welsh are singing in Gaelic, and so he, he has no clue and actually says, um, Mr. Parker says, I'm going to have to get the words later. In other words, He's not going to allow the foreignness of language 
to right. prevent him from getting a deeper understanding of what they sang. It was just simply their harmony, uh, well blended, as Kevin pointed out, that uh, and and just the musicality of it that he was so taken by because he is a student of music, um, but not knowing the words meant he could only appreciate it so far and what respect he pays them by not just oh, okay these guys rescue me i'm gonna hang out in this you know this club for a while you know white servicemen can't beat me up here and then i'll scoot on home no he mm -hmm. actually uh, warms to these guys and and pays them respect by saying i'm not just gonna hang out and be entertained here i'm gonna learn and this guy i mean kathy mentioned that the bookstore uh, it's not just Mr. Caddy who's the reader. Of course, Mr. Parker is the reader. He is, he's making jokes to himself in his head about Othello. He is rewriting uh, some of the lines from Othello in his head. I mean, this is one thing that uh, American literature did not have many examples of a literate, uh, a, a, a well-read black protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, I, I venture to say most white, uh, most white readers of this book are probably not as familiar with Othello as Ellison is, and maybe not even as, as well-versed as, um, pun intended, as, uh, as Mr. Parker is, because Mr. Parker, of course, Othello is about a military, a, a Moor, a black military serviceman serving a, a, a different country, and that's in a way what Ellison's own character, Mr. Parker, is doing it. Yes, he's American, but there's a way America that doesn't treat him as truly American. So it's a natural affinity that Mr. Parker has uh, with uh, with Othello. And if you're a reader and are all impressed by this book, go you got to go rush out and um, read Othello to see what it is that Mr. Parker is doing, um, as I say, by rewriting some of the lines. Mm. I think that's an excellent point. And in fact, I think there's more to be unpacked in this really wonderful observation that Lucas made about the complexity of each of these characters and how innovative and unfamiliar it is to find um, African-American protagonists with so much complex interiority. And yes. bringing back your opening comments about Richard Wright and Ellison's friendship with yes. Richard Wright, this was Ellison's objection to Native Son, and that is that uh -huh. He did not like that Wright was not able to imagine a character who had the kind of interior complexity that Wright himself had. And I think this is a really important contribution that Ellison has made that I don't think gets enough credit, um, is the innovation of imagining um, imagining a protagonist who has that kind of, it's not just uh, that he is so literate and well-read, but that he's humorous and that he incorporates folk tales and folklore with as much proficiency as T.S. Eliot or Othello. I think that's mm -hmm. a really revolutionary development in the American literary imagination. Yeah, the, uh, just to piggyback on that, there's that great line that, El and by the way, Ellison I mean, loved Richard Wright. He he didn't like it when people would would try to either make him just a protege of Wright or an, uh, uh, a, an oppositional figure of Wright. Uh, but it was clear that, that Ellison was uh, approached his craft in a different way than Wright did. He had a different vision, a different picture of America. And precisely to Kathy's point, the, the, the telling line for me is when he says that Richard Wright, uh, bigger, Richard Wright could imagine Bigger Thomas, the protagonist of Native Son. Richard Wright could imagine Bigger Thomas, but Bigger Thomas could not imagine Richard Wright 
Wright saw to that. In other words, for Wright, it was all environment, yeah. all environment. Stimulus gives you this response. In, uh, circumstances give you this response. And for Ellison, that was not his experience as a black man in America. It was not his understanding of the black experience in America. For him, it wasn't simply stimulus, discrimination, enslavement, oppression, response, victimization, victimization, victimization on the part of blacks. He said, no, I, knew, I saw my own mother navigate the, the difficulties of being a black woman working in white homes uh, in segregated Oklahoma. He said, and recognize the ways in which blacks improvised, the way they developed a culture, not entirely um, isolated uh, from um, America, but in fact, it's part of America, weighing, considering, uh, uh, rejecting certain things, let's hope so, and accepting others, modifying them, providing their own flavor, as we say today, their own style, and producing something that Ellison would call, and these are his phrase, this is his phrase, Negro culture. He used the word Negro, even though it's not an acceptable term today. He used it because it captured something about what it meant to grow up Black, especially in the South, in the United States, that even though they were, one of the titles of his later essays, targets of discrimination, they were not merely victims. Yeah. They responded, reacted, adapted, improvised, and tried to figure out, uh, as they say, a way out of no way uh, uh, as, a, as a result of that. And for him, that was an experience that Wright did not capture in, in the greatest of his, uh, of his uh, novels, uh, even though Wright clearly had the craft of writing down Pat. That's great. And that reminds me again on the point you made earlier about uh, Native Son and Bigger Thomas. He ends, spoiler alert, sorry, I won't try to give too much away, try not to give too much away here, but he ends the, in, the, in that novel feeling fully justified in what he had, all the things he had done, because he's been persuaded by others that he is simply a product of his environment. He, he, is, a, he is relieved of all sense of guilt. And in fact, he, uh, because he could have done nothing else, apparently, because of his environment or circumstances. But yeah, that, that's why simplifying it. But that, that's why I, I, I tell my students that that the structure of the novel is is no mundane thing. It is extremely important that they they recognize the order that Ralph Ellison, the author, presents the memoir of Invisible right. Man. That the prologue begins. Right after a series of experiences where the protagonist moves as ellison puts it from ranter to writer he decides not to become an orator but rather to write mm -hmm. he tells his story chapters 1 through 25 and it's in the very telling uh, more specifically it's in the very writing of that series of experiences and episodes and humiliations and learning and relearning and forgetting and learning and relearning the lessons that by the end of the telling of the story, the writing of the story, chapter 25, the beginning of the epilogue, you would think, okay, so we're now back to the present and there you have it. But it, he's, as it were, he learned something about those experiences and mm -hmm. about himself, not even stuff that he didn't know in chapter one. Right. He learns in writing chapter 25 and you know my reading of the epilogue there is a pivot 
there's a certain page in, in line in the epilogue where invisible man himself becomes self-conscious of things that are not that weren't he wasn't conscious of in the prologue or uh, modifies and and changes and maybe even learns as late as writing the epilogue and that's that's where you end the novel so yeah. that series of now then to the past now we're now again but we're not in the same place where we were when we began all of that i, I think you have to unpack to see what it is that ellison is trying to do in that book yeah can, can i just say quickly on that point so ellison invisible man uh as you say learns from all of his experiences uh and he is shaped by his experiences but he never simply and he never gives up or gives in to those to his you know to, to the environment the things that are influencing he tries to understand them come to terms with them and it yes. can push back there are moments in invisible man where he he does sort of resign himself uh uh to, to this but only briefly and then something happens that reminds him right uh, that reinvigorates in him this this desire to resist simply being a creature of his upbringing and environment like uh, for example yeah. when he sees um when he's part of the brotherhood and one of his colleagues i'm sorry i'm forgetting his name leaves the brotherhood or disappears and then he sees him on the street selling the Tom little paper. oh todd clifton yeah. yeah the little paper dolls right and then if it you know and, and that sort of shocks him back into an awareness yeah of how easy it is to slip into that sense that I am, I just am the way I am because of, and I'm, I have no way to resist, you know, my my environment, uh, mm -hmm. you know. So forth. Yes, I am what I am. Um, one point that I want to make before I forget, and, and I was reminded of this back in um, the discussion of, again, the darkness of the night in um, a strange country, uh, one additional connection to the ending of Invisible Man that Lucas, you alluded to earlier that I think is really interesting. And that is <clears throat> um, on page 146, he saw the singer still staring and as though to betray him, he heard his own voice singing out like a suddenly amplified radio. I just mm -hmm. want to highlight the idea of the suddenly amplified radio uh, because that comes back with additional multifaceted resonance in the end of Invisible Man, where he talks about, I mean, Lucas, you pointed out this really excellent observation that the last word is you, but it's also um, the allusion to frequency, um, yes. I think, um, is a development of this idea of the radio that we saw earlier in A Strange Country. The notion that um, a different frequency on a different frequency, his experience is not um, a separate, isolated experience, but that it is a kind of quintessential American experience, I think, is a really important point about how that novel ends. Yes. Scary. <laughs> if, if, if Invisible Man's story is all our story, that's kind of harrowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great point. Well, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time here. So um, I, I wanted earlier to bring up some comments that to bring up some comments that Patricia left. Uh, but I, I people can read those. I think there's some really interesting uh, insights she has into the meaning of invisibility, uh, the difficulty of seeing people for who they really are, but yes. also overlooking their talents and abilities and, and things like this. Because, because I think another great theme in, in Invisible Man, especially is how people not only never really see others for who they truly are, but maybe part of the reason they don't do that is because they want to use others for their own purposes. 
everybody from Dr. Bledsoe to Brother Jack and yep. all these other great moments, right? We, we, we use others and therefore we see others as means to our own ends, uh, which I yep. think is another great theme that Ellison is tackling here. Uh, but but, yeah. there, but another, uh, again, a couple of uh, questions maybe to the extent that you have a few minutes to answer them. Um, somebody asked uh, uh, Ellison's involvement in the civil rights movement. Uh, and I know that's kind of a big question, but uh, Lucas, I've heard you, I think, say that Ellison uh, had some very good things to say about, uh, I think, the Brown v. Board of Education decision, for example, and, and the mm -hmm. Civil Rights Acts uh, of the 1960s. Was he actively involved in the civil rights movement? He um, It's a common question, in fact, a common complaint, a criticism of Ellison that unlike James Baldwin, for example, um, someone who became famous the following year, he's probably a little, I mean, he was probably, I'm trying to remember when he wrote those essays for um, Commentary or New Republic. Anyway, Invisible Man is published in 1952. James Baldwin publishes Go Tell It on the Mountain in 1953. Beautiful novel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Uh, but not, Baldwin was a, a, a definite civil rights advocate. He was on the front lines. He he would go to protests, et cetera. Uh, Baldwin would do that. Ellison was not. Um, Ellison's role was more at uh, an arm's distance. He thought that what the, and he's all but verbatim said, that what Blacks want from me is more novels. What uh -huh. Blacks want from me is more artistry. This is my contribution uh, to civil rights. Remember, the, the novel Invisible End gets published in 52. This is two years before Brown. This is a few years before the Rosa Parks uh, defiance of, of segregated buses, and, and it's what brings King to uh, the foreground as the, the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association in 55, 56. And so civil rights movement is gaining steam in the very decade that, that Ellison uh, produces this novel. And so he is quick at work on the next novel um, after um, the, the great notoriety that Invisible Man brings him. And so in his mind, um, um, he wasn't a foot soldier in the way we expect celebrities to be foot soldiers today uh, uh, with uh, you know, social and political movements. And I mean, he stuck, he stuck to his guns that way. He was on the board of the public broadcasting system. So he was um, the Williamsburg Foundation. I didn't he know was, that. You know, oh. The Schweitzer, oh, he was big. I mean, he was, you know, he loved uh, Lyndon Johnson, was a friend of Lyndon Johnson, uh, uh, believed in the Great Society programs. He was a New Deal Democrat. So Ellison's contribution to civil rights personally as a, as a citizen of America um, was not going to be uh, marching, um, linking arms with, with Baldwin or Harry Belafonte or Sidney Poitier, you know, leading black celebrities. Uh, on the front lines, his was going to be uh, attending to his craft. Uh, and, and he was, um, he mentions that he was a member of some groups, uh, the 100, the number 100 is in the title. I don't remember what it is. It's in the, uh, the collected essays. Uh, but yeah, I mean, huh. like it or not, I mean, Ellison really thought that this was what he had to um, spend his time on. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's all great. I've got to say on that. Oh, that's fascinating. And then, if you don't mind, one more quick question. I think this is a good question. Uh, uh, with the impact of jazz, this is from Israel. Uh, with the impact of jazz on Ellison, did he ever recommend um, any music to listen to? Suggest music <laughs> to have playing while reading his works? Kathy? Uh, 
or or maybe maybe uh maybe if he didn't what do you have any recommendations of the music you could you should listen to <laughs> maybe that's an unfair question when reading his works out loud well kathy's already pointed out that ellison liked to uh listen to um his work when he was working on the second novel he had a reel to reel that he would play back um i have a copy of a speech that he gave at the library of congress i think it's dated to 1964 where he's oh. reading a passage from what was eventually published as juneteenth um it's a sermon in chapter seven i think of that novel where um and it's a much more political novel than invisible man is and i've taught that one as well yeah. Um, it's a sermon and it's a call and response between the preacher and his son, Bliss, um, who eventually goes on to reject the black community that raised him. Uh, and Ellison, you can tell he, you know, like Flannery O'Connor reading her own stuff, you can tell the passages that that really bring delight to them. You know, they kind of chuckle at, at their own words and they're in, in some ways the best appreciators of their own work. Um, so yeah, Ellison, he, I think he would love it if people read his novels out loud. They're not poetry in the sense that, you know, poems you have to read out loud, uh, but the musicality of it, what Kathy referred to as the surreal aspects uh, of Invisible Man, that's certainly something that you pick up better when you do it out loud. I know for me, I can't listen to music, at least in, not music with words while I'm reading words. That's too distracting. I can't yeah. truly multitask. Uh, I want to pay attention to the one or the other fully. Uh, and I, I don't know that I could do them both at the same time. I don't know that Ellison would want you to either. Yeah. But he, I don't know that he ever commented on that. Well, Mark, Mark just suggested maybe some Duke Ellington or Count Basie. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And he's got essays on both of those guys. The, the instrumental stuff, perhaps. Without sure. The, sure. Yeah. Ellison loved Duke Ellington. He thought he was a great American. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining us. And I've taken three pages of notes of things to follow up on. This has been only three pages. Well, they're big pages. <laughs> uh, I did a lot of scribbling. This is great. So really, I appreciate it. This has been very thoughtful. And I think a, a fantastic uh, note to end our, our webinar series on this year. So I'm very grateful to both of you. Thank you. Uh, Glad to be here. Great to be with Kathy again. Yes, it was a real pleasure. Uh, and thanks uh, for, for submitting some great comments and questions uh, from our uh, participants today. Just a re reminder about the email that you'll receive with that link for your certificate of participation. If you enjoyed our webinar today or the webinars in this series, please look into the other resources provided by Ashbrook at tah.org, uh, including a series of webinars, uh, a number of series of, of, of uh, additional webinars for teachers and students while they stay at home uh, during these times. So you can help us spread the word about these programs by sharing the archive link, which you'll receive again by email uh, to your colleagues and on social media. So thanks again for everybody uh, who joined us and uh, look forward to seeing you in our next webinar series next year. So stay tuned for some information about uh, the, the themes and, and topics that we'll discuss. Hopefully that will be posted to tah.org uh, very soon. In the meantime, stay safe, uh, and thank you again very much. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Go to tah.org slash programs slash webinars for more information about our current and our archived and eventually upcoming series. Thanks again.